0: Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital focused podcast, where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I'm joined by a really great crew today. I have in one corner, Natasha Moscarinas. Natasha, hello.
1: Hello, Alex. It's great to be here as your sole best friend at TechCrunch.
0: Indeed, you are the only one with whom I would ever use that title and Danny is not it. But our personal interpersonal issues are not the key thing today. What matters even more than that is that we have one of our other best friends on the show with us today, none other than mary ann as Mary Ann, please say hello to the people
2: hi everyone happy to be here
0: for those of you who don't know uh the three of us used to work at crunch news as a team ooh, ooh. and then we, we migrated to tc and now we're back together as a team it's a match made in heaven and as a small production note mary ann's audio will not be exactly where we want it this week not because she's not perfect but because fedex or ups or usps someone let us down on the delivery of a new mic so next week she'll sound even better. Marianne, what's your job title here? I forget
2: a senior reporter.
0: And Natasha, you just got a new job title. What's that
2: senior reporter? Oh,
0: yeah, that's right. (laughs) Everybody bringing the big guns. Um, And we got a great show for you this week, guys, we got funding rounds from ramp, no red ink and playbook. We have three themes, including Latin America and all the amazing stuff going on down there. We're gonna talk about the difficulty of hiring and how that's kind of shaking up the startup world. And also Boston and Austin and all the superlative venture capital results from around the world. Things are hot. To kick things off, Marianne, a company you and I have both covered almost ad nauseum at this point, Ramp, is back in the news. Tell us what's up.
2: Earlier this week, they raised $300 million in a Series C round at a $3.9 billion valuation. It's only a couple of years old, this company, and just a few months ago, like April, it was valued at $1.6 billion. So we're talking about More than doubling valuation in a few months period.
0: I I would kind of like him and ha and complain about that, Natasha, but given that Databricks is expected to add like 10 billion in value in in like six months, maybe ramp is actually going too slow.
1: I was actually surprised when I saw that their founded date was 2019. Like I thought it was genuinely a factual error (laughs) because Brex, I believe, was 2017. I may that, be wrong.
0: That feels roughly correct. Yeah.
1: Okay. I'm um, we'll just pick big asterisk next to that one. But I feel like Brex and ramp over the years just feel like older companies simply by how much they've grown, That it's always still surprising somehow that they're at the stage.
0: Yeah. Startup time has been compressed mightily in the last couple of years as money has increased in pace. And also I would just say innovation. People seem to be building faster. Marianne though, this company also bought someone as part of this kind of funding round news.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They made it their first acquisition. Um, it's a company called Buyer. Buyer helps teams negotiate contracts like SaaS contracts so they can save money. It's like a negotiation as a service platform is what they call it. And they say that they've helped clients save like on average 27% on big ticket purchases, like annual software contracts. Eric Gleiman, CEO of Ramp said he thinks this it's going to be a good addition to the Ramp product offering and helping its customers save money.
1: Marianne, I'm really curious if you found it to be a surprise or new move for Ramp to be acquiring something that it could now brand around cost savings. Like, Has Ramp historically been focused on cost savings? Or to me, it just kind of screams like 2019, 2020. Isn't everyone just spending everything these days? Yeah, that's really part of what Ramp is doing. I mean, spend
2: management, expense management, and at the end of the day, all of that is trying to help companies save money, right? Like if you're not spending as much, if you don't have as many expenses, you're saving money. So I do think it is in line with what they've been doing. You think it's interesting that now it's not just like incumbents buying fintechs but more and more fintechs are consolidating and buying other companies in the space so i think this trend is kind of interesting because both brex and ramp made their first acquisitions recently so you know i think we're going to be seeing more and more of this type of thing
0: just given the sheer number of early stage fintech rounds that we've all at least looked at in the last 18 months surely there has to be consolidation coming because they're not all going to make it as independent companies To Natasha's point about Ramp, I mean, their differentiator, if I recall correctly, Marianne, when they launched was they would help you, like, see where you had, like, uh, duplicate transactions and so forth. And so they were always trying to, like, be the card that makes all of its revenue from interchange while also helping their customers spend less money, which was always counterintuitive to me. But it seems to have worked out brilliantly, even though it it (laughs) feels... It feels a little backwards, but it, it seems to work quite well.
2: Working quite well is accurate. They said that they've grown a thousand percent year over year. I think one of the points that was made also by the company and, and a key investor, the lead investor, was that, you know, as companies grow and mature, they tend, to, their growth tends to slow, right? Percentage of growth tends to slow down. That's just the natural evolution of things. But, you know, when you see a company like this where the, the percentage of growth actually keeps increasing,
1: that's, that's really notable. And I
2: think it's very interesting that Ramp is.
1: Alex, you wrote a really great piece with Lawler about how Ramp and Brex's different M&A strategies look and what that means. And I'll let you say your biggest takeaway. But to me, it seemed like it was what they're choosing to make free and what they're choosing to not make free. T- talk to everyone a little bit about like that philosophy.
0: Okay, so if you think about the corporate spend space, writ large, it's more than just Brex and Ramp. There's also Airbase and a couple of other companies in there, and there's there's a neat distinction between them, which is some of them charge for their software products, some of them offer them for free. Divi, another player in the space that was bought by, I think it was bill.com for like a billion and a half, was free. Ramp has no paid products. Brex does have an offering that costs about 50 bucks a month for extra features. And so what we're kind of seeing through that prism and also through the companies that they're buying is where they're probably going to be focusing in the near term. Our read, as best we can say from today, is that Ramp seems to be targeting perhaps larger customers, while Brex seems to have a relatively SMB-ish focus. If you think about them doing outdoor advertising, if you want to land a Fortune 500 account, you don't buy a billboard, you hire an expensive enterprise sales team. Brex is a killer job building its brand and growing its customer base in that area. So we're kind of seeing differentiation, going to be a crowded space. As a final note to this, Brex also launched a venture debt program. So we're seeing, again, fintechs go horizontal once they've acquired customers trying to drive as much ARPU as they
2: can. I agree with you 100%. I feel like Ramp and Brex are often lumped together. They are very, very you know similar, but they are different. And I believe you your your point is 100% like Ramp seems to have like a larger client base, um, companies would... More employees, higher revenues. And whereas Brex is definitely focused more on the smaller SMB or startup. So just want to say I agree with you.
0: Well, they're, they're worth like, what, 10 billion now between the two of them or something? So something's going on there. But let's pivot our way out of fintech and into the edtech space and to talk about our favorite thing in the world, Natasha, writing.
1: Oh my gosh. I was so excited to see this company pop up in my inbox. Shout out to Danny Creighton. So, No Red Inc. raised a 50 million Series B, and per their name, they're all about making students better writers for those who somehow have avoided red ink in their lifetime. It's a joke about how you get a lot of edits when you submit a draft and your whole paper is covered with red ink. I still have like my first C plus in college because it was so horrifying and red.
0: One I'm fascinated by the company and we're going to get back to that. But critically, what was the C plus in like, oh my what gosh. was the class?
1: It's actually going to sound so sad. It was, it was a piece assignment about like the first you write an obituary about yourself.
0: What? You got a C and- plus in the self-obituary?
1: Yeah. I was like, that, is so- that, is- that means something, right, guys? Like, I don't know. It means something.
0: <laughs> Not ready to go yet, I guess. Like, apparently yeah. you have some work to do.
1: Yeah, that's a weird no, it assignment was not... that's,
2: it was horrifying. that's just weird
1: yeah mm-hmm. no it was definitely not a great one but it did get a fire under my butt and I think like per the co-founder who used to be a high school English teacher a lot of what he wants to work on is students get that red ink get that feedback and then kind of don't know what to do with it other than like have their feelings hurt so it's trying to create this phrase that's used a lot in ed tech which is adaptive learning where uh-huh. they start to see where students consistently make mistakes and then start to give them prompts based on that and also kind of just be like the angel on the shoulder and like whisper them tips as they write their essays. I was reading about it and just thought, you know, we love to write, but not everybody
2: loves to write. If you're a young writer and you're struggling, like I can imagine these sort of prompts would be immensely helpful. I thought it was a brilliant idea. And one of the first things I thought was like, wow, I bet my kids could really, you know, benefit from this.
0: And, and that means there's spend out there from parents, which means it has a business model. Uh, but Natasha, we've seen Grammarly get huge. And so there's obviously proven market demand for for writing, assisting help.
1: Definitely. And when I compared them to Grammarly, the CEO was pretty specific in his response of being them being different. I do think that they're, Alex, to your point, though, like I had the same exact thought process, like Grammarly helps underline tone and style. I think No Red Ink actually is trying not to get into that space specifically because writing is such an art that they don't want to get into the business of saying this is a good essay and this is a bad essay because it's cheesy. And this is why I think it's like going to be a really hard company to pull off, even though it's so interesting. Like the beauty is in the eye of the beholder for writing and editors are great people, but they're also humans. And that Is what helps it our writing get better
0: (laughs) it's well said uh but one thing i was confused by is how long ago it's series a round was because today i feel like if you raise a series a by the next quarter you should have your series c done so tell us a little (laughs) bit about the uh the company's history if you will
1: yeah i mean in a sharp contrast to ramp it's like half a billion raise in two years no red ink last raised a series a six years ago and When I pushed on why that was, he said that they had been really capital efficient and they're now starting to see scale be more of an opportunity for them. And so it's a pretty, you know, PR answer. But I also think that it is like EdTech is changing. So maybe there are districts that are finally having capital to allocate because that's where they eventually sell its districts and not like parents necessarily.
0: Translating that a little bit for everybody. Capital efficient means didn't lose that much money for a period of time and now seeing opportunities for scale means they can put money into their go-to-market motion through gtm if you will and uh, and essentially drive faster growth so startups right. shouldn't raise before they can deploy the capital this makes some sense and uh, it'll be fun to see what they do with a, a 50 million dollar series b i mean that's that used to be a series b fund uh, how times have changed <laughs> now marianne the next thing we're talking about threw me for a loop because it's it's a company called playbook and it's quote building per your headline a dropbox for designers I thought Dropbox was Dropbox for designers. What's going on here?
2: Jessica Koh, the co-founder of the company, was head of design at Open Door and Google. She described what sounded like just pure hell. Just so much stress of trying to manage all these assets. There's too many files. There's old versions and nobody knows what version is the most recent. And and people are sharing files via email and Slack. And you know it was just chaotic. So she was one of those founders that was like, okay, I'm going to Start a company to solve the the problem that I'm dealing with. They have a four million dollars seed round that they are announcing today as they emerge out of stealth.
1: I feel like drop Dropbox gets disrupted like every other day, and I don't know like has it ever succeeded or which of these like Dropbox disruptors will win. I was really impressed, Marianne, in the story when I think you mentioned that they have like been working through 2 million assets and have a lot of early customer usage, but are still free. I I guess, I don't know. I feel like it's like kind of what you were saying in the intro, Alex, like why isn't Dropbox doing this?
0: Well, I mean, Dropbox and Box have become enterprise file storage and productivity companies because they discovered that storage was incredibly hard to charge margin for in a world when prices were falling. And so they had to kind of like pivot. I mean, Box added security, right? And EKM and Dropbox bought, um uh oh gosh mailbox a thousand years ago i remember that i was back in dropbox was like one of the coolest companies (laughs) in san francisco way before their ipo they've been trying to expand but in this case you know thinking about one specific vertical of the world designers that's not really a niche it's kind of a market if you will versus something that that's overly narrow but with four terabytes of free storage they're going to have to charge for this because that's not cheap to keep alive And so, Marianne, I'm curious, do we have any notes about what it's going to cost when it does charge?
2: Not yet. They're really focused, they said, on building the product. They have an interesting marketing strategy, which could be brilliant. Maybe not. They're starting with a focus on the freelancer. They feel like there's so many companies working with freelance designers these days. So they're betting on the fact that freelancers are going to be like, hey, I use this new program um, called Playbook, and you should try it. It's really cool. And then a company is going to be like, oh, wow, this is really cool. Let's get it. That's their thinking behind how they're going to get into some of these bigger organizations kind of this built-in marketing by having their freelancers introduce
1: it by just using it. So we'll see how that pans out for them. So they're not really worried about monetizing yet. I was going to ask you about the freelancer aspect cuz part of me was thinking about Airtable and how it just tries to get like 3 people at the company to be obsessed with it and then branches in and I hear companies do that all the time. But I wonder if there's a difference between going freelancer route and or like the the nerd that loves to try new SaaS products, not looking at Alex.
0: Because, <laughs> I mean, ironically, I I love SaaS, but I hate using SaaS. I yeah. like, I like the, the... Yeah, I'm not very good with the software. Let's pivot, though, to something that I'm very excited to talk about, because we happen to have with us today, with Marianne, our Latin American expert. And I've been writing about Latin America. Marianne, you've been writing about Latin America forever. And you put together really, I think kind of the canonical here's where the area is in startup land piece. And so tell us a little bit about what you put down on paper.
2: I kind of took a little break from just covering straight funding rounds and worked on this deep dive looking at Latin America and why investors like global investors are putting so much money in the region. Latin America has matured and grown like crazy in terms of its startup scene. And I think The opportunities there are immense and more and more global investors are seeing that as evidenced by the numbers. And before there used to just be a few rounds here and there. Now they're daily. The key things that I found and what some of these investors were saying is that when you look at investment here in the United States, especially when it relates to say like fintech, it's more about how can we improve? what we have that's out there, right? How can we make it better? How can we make it more convenient? In a place like the region, like Latin America, it's more, uh, as SoftBank's partner put it, it's more about inclusion, right? It's more about making access, making financial services more accessible for more people in the region because it's very underbanked, unbanked. And that to me is like really hit home. And And I said this before and I know it's cliche and I'll repeat it again because it's really, there's no other way to say it. If tech is not helping make the world a better place, then really, what good is it, right? So, I that's why I kind of love. Yeah, I love covering Latin America. I I love covering the fact that there are these entrepreneurs that are really out there trying to improve the lives of the citizens of their countries and the countries surrounding. And some of these companies are going to go global. Their their technology is going to end up being used in other countries around the world. So, yeah, I, I, I'm sitting here getting chills. I just think. I just think that what's happening in Latin America is, is incredible. And I, I'm not surprised. I've been covering the region for a few years. And if I were an investor, I'd definitely be putting my money there.
0: So Marianne, on the inclusion point, we're seeing a lot of fintech companies like Nubank and even things like Corner Shop that are helping to kind of digitize these SMBs and in, in, in the area. What else is going on in Latin America, aside from fintech, that we should have our eyes on when we consider kind of like the pace of innovation and maybe where capital is going down there?
2: Yeah, I mean, prop tech, of course, is huge, right? I think there's a lot of prop tech happening, digital brokerages that are doing really well, like Loft, Quinto and Dard, which recently raised more money. So I feel like prop tech is also evolving quite a bit. They are trying to find properties, buy them, rent them. It's just very different than here. So we're seeing a lot of transformation in prop tech.
1: In my world, in ed tech, I've been seeing a lot of US based firms start to look at Latin America, which is a sign of, of something. One company that I recently covered, Coder House, had just raised its first venture capital check ever after bootstrapping for years. And so to me, that was a really nice example To Marianne, to your point, that company's in the reskilling space. So it's more about like inclusion, how to get people to, to be promoted within companies.
0: So let's talk about countries though, because there was $6.2 billion invested across Latin America in the first half of this year, which is more than double what was raised in the first half of 2020, and more than in all of last year total. So Marianne, lots of money is going in. What are the couple leading countries where we're seeing the most investment these days down there?
2: Well, no surprise that Brazil remains like the top recipient of venture funds, but it's the largest country and probably has the most mature startup scene. But I think one of the things that's really interesting is that Mexico is really very close on the heels of Brazil in terms of, of deals and dollars raised.
0: That just matches what I what I've heard. I feel like everyone's based in Mexico City or Brazil.
1: It makes me also realize that like we're moving beyond a point where Rappi they are not the only example we'll be pointing to. I feel like they were always like the must-have example to have in like the lead, but it's been cool to see both of your pieces kind of skip trying to explain why it's important and just immediately get to like what's changing.
0: I have to move us along, but I just want to point out in our notes doc for this particular episode, we have tons more in Latin America because there's so much going on including Flink raising 57 million dollars. I wrote a bunch of stuff about Brazilian IPOs. Uh, we have to move on, but expect more Latin American coverage on the show as time goes along because there's so much happening. So, a question though for for both of you: Have you guys heard of Pixar, the company, getting I have not. blank faces? Okay, cool. <laughs> so, I only learned about them earlier this year, and so I was just curious if they were more popular than than I thought. But I, they're they're kind of popular with like the the Gen Z creative world, and they're kind of breaking into the business world, and they provide video and photo editing tools and they've grown past 100 million in revenue and they are now a unicorn but i was just talking to the company after they raised money and we were talking about hiring and essentially how hard it is to acquire talent and in response to this pixar is opening up hubs around the world to scale its people to more than a thousand and it's doing a lot of great stuff but it seems that this discussion of how to hire has reached a fever pitch in conversations with founders and investors alike frankly Uh, Natasha, to the point at which you actually wrote about how it's now the biggest thing, more than conserving runway, say it's getting the right folks.
1: Totally. I remember in March... Of 2020, like every investor had kind of followed the same script of our top line advice to startups right now is here's how to conserve your runway. And so even at TechCrunch, we had a lot of articles where our funding stories, if you look back, had this like eerie tone of like they managed to raise funding anyways. And here's how there's gonna they're gonna conserve every cent. Obviously that's changed. And when we were talking to NEA last week, Alex, um, and who's one of the newer partners on the team, was just saying, like, how to hire is like the new top line advice like that is everything all people care about because it's easy to raise money but there's no way each of the companies that's raising money right now can acquire the best talent especially in their category so i thought that was spicy and i also thought that it was just like a good reminder of like how things are changing
0: yeah if you look at some headlines from from tech it's obvious this has become a theme because all the people who occasionally write guest posts for us are starting to really hammer on the topic of getting folks so like headlines like How and when to hire your first product manager, how to hire your first engineer, how to hire a growth team like everyone needs help with this. And that's why talent is expensive. And and frankly, I think that's why remote work is going to stay because employees have the, uh, the leverage.
1: I think, too, like with Workstream, I just wrote about this company. They are working on text based recruitment for hourly workers. And so beyond even tech. This is an issue that's being thought of with everyone with turnover, with the great resignation. Seeing them raise a $50 million, I believe, or $48 million, sorry, Series B from Bond and Co2. I think the conversation sometimes does just stay along. Like, isn't it so hard to get tech talent these days? It's hard to get any talent.
0: In fact, hiring is getting so complex these days. We're hearing a return of the phrase aqua hire, which I really feel like kind of fell out of use for a while there. But just this week, Substack bought something. They bought a thing called Cocoon, mostly for the staff. They were building a, a social network for kind of close-knit friend groups. Cool idea. Been tried. Didn't seem to go as well as I'd hoped. And now they're part of Substack. sub stack. But again, like it's it, spending lots of money to buy people to bring them into your firm is what you do when things are especially hot. And so that's kind of where we are, I think, today. And Natasha, I'm just giggling because, you know, you and I wrote a lot together last year about the freeze in VC and, and the panic and the fear. And it really feels like a passing fever dream now. Like, I swear to gosh, that was like three weeks of panic. And then everything just went away and the good times were back. It was surreal.
1: Yeah, I I keep wondering and I keep trying to get people to tell me and predict the future on like, what is the next thing that's going to make people start to be more grounded in their decisions? I think with ed tech, at least a lot of market is starting to tap out. And so I recently covered layoffs at a boot camp business. And that was like a recent sign that some of the buzz isn't turning into dollars necessarily or isn't turning into like the future. So I do see something happening that's going to change it, but I agree that it feels like a fever dream.
0: (laughs) And and speaking of feverish dreams, nothing is hotter than Austin in the summer. And Austin startup scene is also incredibly warm. And I don't know why I just did a Danny Crichton transition there. Gosh, apparently I miss him. (laughs) Uh, But Marianne, gosh, darn it. We get he finally leaves and then we just bring him back. I apologize for that. Uh, We're going to talk about Boston and Austin now. Uh, Marianne, you know, Austin the best because that's where you're located. What is the latest set of There's
2: been a lot of hype around Austin lately with talk of how everybody's moving here, especially from the West Coast. And even though I live here, I have remained a very skeptical observer of our startup scene and probably more critical than I should be. And I've been very doubtful that Austin is deserving, honestly, of all the hype that it's been getting. But then I saw the numbers. Second quarter, according to CB Insights, Austin startups raised a record $1.8 billion. For context, in 2019, that's about how much Austin startups raised like for the whole year. Oh, wow. So that was a huge jump. I mean, the first quarter was only like Five hundred seventy-seven million dollars. So when I saw that, I was like, "Okay, gotta eat my eat my words here," because maybe it is living up to the hype, or maybe it's just an anomaly. Maybe this is just a, a fluke quarter. We'll see. I don't know. But this quarter was it was impressive in you're terms being, of dollar volume.
0: You're being way too unkind to yourself. Uh, you have been entirely right up until three months ago, is what you just told <laughs> me. Like you were, like yeah, want... basically. <laughs> and and now with the data changing, you've changed your mind. So I, I I don't see any issues with this. This seems to be totally, totally relevant. Um, Natasha, you went to university back in the day in Boston, a city that uh, you and I both have affinity for. It seems like given the numbers we have uh, with us today, Boston's also doing incredibly well from a startup kind of fundraising perspective.
1: Totally. I mean, you covered a story earlier this week. We saw more rounds in Q1 and Q2 2021 than any other period and Q2 2021 had capital invested 100% year on year from 25% more rounds, which I learned this from you, especially at Crunchbase, where it's like, it's great when it's not just more capital, but when it's actually more capital and more rounds, because it means the ones that are doing good aren't the only ones raising.
0: And and just to, to underscore that a little bit more, if you see rounds decline and dollars invested go up, all that means is late stage companies are doing great. Early-stage companies could still be starving on the vine. So if you see rising dollar volume and more deals, it generally implies to Natasha's point that lots of folks are raising. So Boston is healthy. Austin is healthy. Uh, I recently wrote about Chicago, record numbers there. I don't know LA off the top of my head, but I know Silicon Valley is doing fine. It, it, it just seems like everywhere I look, there's all-time record numbers, and, and it, it's, it, it's exciting. But I, I, I wonder about returns for all this money. Like, Is this all going to pencil out,
2: Marianne, in the end? Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I, I'm going to age myself right now. I covered startups in the dot-com boom and bust era, and I really it feels very much uh, like that time. To be honest with you, and it's almost like it's a little too much. You know, there's so much capital, so many companies raising the pace at which they're raising the the valuations. It's like this cannot be sustainable. Eventually, this is going to have to calm down a little bit. I'm not saying we're in a bubble that's going to be like popped, but. I, I just don't think this is sustainable and I think things are going to have to level off eventually when I don't know but I don't think anybody expected this to to your point earlier after the pandemic and fears of of inability to raise right
1: totally I think like adding like some optimism I think before the conversation used to be like will boston ever beat new york or will austin ever look impressive compared to san francisco and I hope I think that conversation is easing out a little bit because people like believe this really controversial idea that multiple startup hubs can exist and it doesn't have to be either or. And I feel like that has been like really cool to see. And hopefully even if and when, let's not it's not even an if, when things settle down, that sort of growth or belief I'm guessing will stay there in like the culture of the city. That might be me being really optimistic, but I don't know. That's what I'm thinking.
2: I think the pandemic has helped with that, right? Because it's really shown that remote work works and that companies can be based anywhere. Great companies and great people. So I really feel like the pandemic, if anything, one of the few good things that have come out of it is showing this. Where you are is so much less important than it used to be, like physically, where you are physically.
0: I mean, just think about New Bank from Latin America. Going to go public probably on the New York or NASDAQ exchange for a bajillion dollars. It's based not in the US, but does that matter? And also, like, I need to write about this, but like every single startup that I talk to, that's like seed stage and, and earlier lately is remote by default because they hired their designer in Dusseldorf and they have a person in Hawaii, two in Bangalore. They got one dude who works the night shift in Argentina. And like, that's how that's the people they found who really cared about their project. And so to me, are those companies ever going to like spend equity capital to put together an office so they can tell their parents they have one? I mean, it just doesn't seem to be the future to me. It seems backwards, if you will. Agreed. All right. Well, we are over time. Uh, Marianne, thank you so much for, for joining us today. We'll have you back on next week. We're very excited about it. Natasha, thank you as always for your time. And the Equity Crew is back Monday morning. Goodbye.